So welcome to Coffee with the Coalition. And if you could introduce yourselves, Tim Shoecraft, just introduce yourself and a quick go over what you do. Well, my name is Tim Shoecraft. I'm the Michigan, I work with the Michigan Opioid Collaborative at the University of Michigan Medicine Anesthesiology Department. Um, I'm a peer recovery project coordinator. So I work with community coalitions and providers to um, and increase access to treatment and reduce stigma. Kimberly? Am I on mute? Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kim Johnson, and um, currently I am in the process of looking for a new job, but I am a big advocate for people um, in recovery for harm reduction prevention here in town. I'm also on the board for Families Against Narcotics. All right, thanks for joining us. Tim Hudson. Hi, I'm Tim Hudson. I'm the behavioral health consultant for uh, the Michigan Opioid Collaborative. I work with Tim Shoecraft. Uh, I cover the Northern 21 counties here. And as Tim said, uh, you know, our goals, we work to uh, increase availability of medications for opioid use disorder, as well as provide education and waiver trainings uh, for providers and community partners on uh, all substance use disorders. Okay, Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa Anderson. Um, currently, I'm with Up North Prevention, which is part of Catholic Human Services, and I cover Grand Traverse, Leelanau, and Kalkaska counties. And I live here in Kalkaska, and I chair the Live Well Kalkaska Substance Free Coalition, and I'm part of all the different um, uh, substance use coalitions in my other two counties. But two of you know this on the screen, but three of you don't. Um, I am taking another position in the near future with the Kalkaska County Commission on Aging as a community resource specialist. Um, I plan to uh, stay a part of the Live Well Kalkaska Coalition because I believe in it strongly and um, I've been around with it almost since the beginning. And so, uh, yeah, so there's that. And we're glad she's staying. <laughs> oh, and I'm Suzanne Prentice. I'm the coordinator of Live Well Kalkaska Substance Free Coalition. I have a son who is struggling with substance use disorder. And I wear a lot of different hats with a lot of the different coalitions. So next, uh, Janine Wardy, uh, can you introduce yourself? And she is our guest speaker. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, it's always a privilege to speak and, and to tell my story. Um, I am Janine Wardy. I'm a Kalkaska resident. Um, I am the founder for uh, a movement here in Northern Michigan called Hope Lives in Northern Michigan, or an acronym NOMI, Hope Lives in NOMI. Um, I am a mom that uh, unfortunately lost her son to suicide. And I'm also um, an attempt survivor and um, a lifelong um, person who battles with the darkness of severe depression. All right, do you wanna tell us a little bit more um, your story? Sure. Um, well, again, um, I really appreciate you having me this morning. And um, every time I tell my story, and I say my story, but it's my son's story also, um, it brings a measure of healing. And um, 
I, I, in hopes, I'm always hoping too that that measure of healing is also felt by the people that I'm sharing with. So um, my goal today is to inspire hope um, by sharing um, my story and my son's story. And um, it's, it's just so important that we all have, that we're all holding on to hope because without it, what do we have, right? So um, I want to start by um, sharing some some numbers that are pretty um, pretty startling. Um, in 2019, over 47,000 people died by suicide. And that's one death by suicide every 11 minutes. And those that are thinking about suicide, those numbers are much higher. In 2019, 12 million Americans seriously thought about suicide. And these numbers were all pre-COVID, and we know that these numbers are significantly higher um, at the onset of um, the COVID and the, uh, the ripple effects that are happening that continue to be happening because of the pandemic. One in four people that died by suicide have a diagnosable mental health issue or illness at the time of their death. And one in four young people have voiced concerns about their mental health, or excuse me, their mental well-being the past year. Suicides are increasing, suicide rates are increasing, and it continues to be the second leading cause of death for our youth ages 10, beginning at 10 to 34. And I believe we all need to be talking about our mental health as openly as we talk about our physical health. I read a, um, a quote on Facebook the other day that really hit me and it really rang true to say that there is no health without mental health. And when we say that, you know, our mental health is our brain. And if our brain is broken or is ill, it affects everything about us. It affects our um, everything because it controls our body. So without our mental health, we have no physical health, right? But we have such a hard time because of the stigma that's been attached to talking about it for so many years. We don't talk about it. We, we, stay, in, we stay in that darkness a lot of times and most times. So it's so important that we're talking about our mental health as easily and openly and normally as we talk about our physical health and doing everything that we can to remove the layers of stigma that have built up and continue to build up removing those so those of us that are dealing with a mental illness are able to talk about it and are able to reach out and get the help that we need. Um, share a little bit about my story and my son. Um, sadly, tomorrow, September 29th, um, is the six-year date of my son, Zechariah, uh, losing his battle with his uh, mental illness, severe depression. Um, he died by suicide on September 29th, six years ago. We got the call, and um, I am a completely different person uh, since that date. You can't, you can't help but not be a different person. Um, my entire being is different because my son died by suicide. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned he was 25 years old. Um, he was like many that are dealing with severe depression, and I should mention, too, that Depression is more than sadness. A lot of people don't understand that. You can be sad, um, but depression is definitely more than sadness. He was, um, 
he, his smile was huge. It lit up any room that he walked into. He was a friend to many. He was an encourager to all. Um, he was a team, team player. Um, he power lifted when he was in high school, so he was very physically strong. Um, my husband likes to say that Zach was probably the strongest person that he'd ever met physically, but unfortunately, um, mentally, he was fighting a battle that eventually took his life. He, he lost his, his battle, his, his illness won six years ago tomorrow. Um, it is important to say that when someone dies by suicide, and especially my son, it, it, he didn't want to die. They don't want to die. They're fighting this pain, this hellacious mental and physical pain that convinces them, this illness and the side effects convinces them that there's no other way out. They're feeling hopeless. Their brain has told them that they're useless, that there's no reason to go on, basically no hope. And it's when someone says that suicide is selfish, that is not true in any way. And it's so important that we, we say it to them and correct them in a kind way that no, it's not selfish. It is an illness. An illness took my son. And, and um, like I mentioned before, um, you know, one in four people that die by suicide have a diagnosable or had a diagnosable mental illness at the time of their life. So it's their illness that takes them. Um, one thing that I, I'm very, very passionate about is talking about suicide safe and being safe and responsible when we talk about that. And one of the words that's been connected with um, suicide, the conversation around suicide forever is the word commit. And it's such an unsafe and irresponsible word to use when it comes to talking about death by suicide. Um, when someone dies by, because of some other illness, whether it be cancer, heart disease, or MS, or diabetes, do we say that someone, that they committed cancer, or they committed diabetes or heart disease? Absolutely not. So we need to not be using that word when we talk about someone dying by suicide. They died because of an illness. And anybody that I've talked to in the past six years, I very um, gently educate them if they use that word and I always encourage them if someone else, they hear someone else using that word when it comes to um, being associated with suicide, that they also um, educate them um, the safe and responsible way to have that conversation. That one word is so important and it, it brings, if people would just try to wrap their minds around the, the fact that it's an illness and that's the, the illness, severe depression, whether it be severe depression, anxiety, a personality disorder, um, a substance use disorder, um, PTSD, of course, um, is something that affects our, our mental, mental health. So it's so important to know that um, my son didn't want to die. His illness, he, he lost his battle with his illness. Janine, I just want to say um, we all feel badly for the loss of your son. You. And, um, it, you know, sitting here and thinking about it that and and in our world of of combating substance use disorder and the stigma that goes along with that that's one of the reasons we were so excited to have you here because um so often substance use disorder and mental illness are intertwined and the the public 
viewpoint and, and the stigma, the negative implications are very similar for both situations. And, you know, sitting here, um, I myself uh, didn't really understand depression until it happened to me. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait this deep dark pit of despair that you just can't even claw yourself out of you you can't even describe it to people really until it happens to you um and so i just wanted to ask you a question and you have tons of good information but one thing i didn't know until you started talking is that you are the survivor of an attempt did that change your viewpoint and feelings a little bit or your understanding of your son's situation? Oh, absolutely. Um, depression can also be, um, it can be genetic. It can also be caused by life circumstances. Um, and both of them intertwine, obviously, it, it could be the cause. But mine is definitely, my depression is definitely genetic. My family, it runs um, very much through my, my family genes. And um, so, I didn't know, and that, that was going to be my next thing that I talked about, um, I didn't know the signs that somebody may be in a mental health crisis. Um, my son was quite young when I, um, when I attempted, but it wasn't, my surviving my attempt was definitely a, a, a life turning point for me, and um, I had never thought about medication. I had never thought about um, seeing a therapist until that point. And that was many, many years ago. And I started seeing a counselor. And fortunately for me, the medication that I got, um, got on at that time and continues today was the right medication for me. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. We've heard so many stories about people that either as an adult or they're bringing their kids to get treatment and they try medication and it makes it worse. And then they try another medication and it makes it worse. Um, I'm very blessed to say that the medication that they put me on um, definitely is, is still working today. Do I still struggle? Absolutely. Do I still have thoughts of suicide? Absolutely. It's a side effect of the illness that I will have for the rest of my life. So I don't, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Um, I, was very, I was very sympathetic to my son's darkness because I know that darkness, if that answers your question. Yeah, it very much does. It um, just kind of ties in a little bit with, um, you know, unfortunately, mental health and physical health, as you said in the beginning, have been separated for entirely too long, mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that has to do with our culturalization and our, you know, religious and spiritual beliefs. Um, there's a great PBS um, documentary that was in a couple of parts and I saw like the first three parts and then they took it up on demand, but it did such a good job of historically telling us how our beliefs about um, things like depression and suicide came about because our physicians were also oftentimes our spiritual leaders. And so it was kind of intertwined in some of that sort of old-fashioned thinking is still with us today, you know, as far as um, separating the two, and it, it really shouldn't be. Um, you know, my younger sister had substance use disorder, 
and um, they found her slumped over the wheel of her car. She had um, taken a bunch of different things and uh, they ruled it a, a suicide, the coroner's office did. And my mother was very upset about it, you know, and, and I kind of had to talk her through it that mom, either way, she's gone. So the fact that they checked a certain box on a form, because that's what they have to do, mm -hmm. um, doesn't change all that much. It doesn't, but it does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, her coming from an older generation and, you know, there is a difference between intentional and unintentional absolutely i really think so mm -hmm. anyway um yeah but and one of the other things too though janine that you brought up is your son was 25 i've done some readings in that young adult age um seems to be a point where a lot of folks first start to develop their their depression or their other kinds of mental illness mm -hmm. and um you know i don't know if that's the the biological part because it runs in their family and the maturation of their brain i don't have all those letters behind my my name mm -hmm. but i know definitely in young women over the years i've read a lot of stuff and and they seen that yeah it in in you know mid-20s it seems is when depression really starts to come out in a lot of people so mm -hmm. right. um, i don't know if you've done any reading on that yeah i have and and that's the time where kids are getting out of either you know just graduating from high school and if they don't have any directions um maybe they don't know what they're going to be doing with their life after high school and of course their brains are still developing and, um, you know, there's so much for, for kids, even, um, even at 20, to be navigating, you know, especially right now with, with everything that's going on in the social media and, and all of that. But um, one of the things that I felt that was so important to talk about is that 80% of those that die by suicide, they reach out in some way or form, and we either miss it, dismiss it, or ignore it. So it's so important that everybody, everybody gets involved in some type of an educational training. And there are many that are happening here in Northern Michigan um, to know the signs that somebody might be in a mental health crisis and be that person, learn how to um, have that conversation safely and responsibly, knowing what to say and what not to say and to try to be that bridge that brings them to the life-saving help that they need. So that, that education piece is so important. I believe that awareness and education and trainings, they will and they can prevent suicide. And it's everybody's job. Uh, you can't, I don't think you can talk to anybody in your circle or out of your circle that has not some way been touched by um, loss to suicide, whether it be somebody very close to you or somebody maybe removed from you, but the, the ripple effects from it. So um, the, the education and the training is so, so important. And-, and um, So what are some of those, those signs, Janine? Um, I mean, are there ones- oh, there's, there, there are many and- um, some of the things that we talk about um, are changes in behavior, major changes in behavior. And um, for instance, when my son was um, in his like 18 and 19, 
he spent a lot of time in his bedroom and you think, well, that's just kids, right? You know, kids, teenagers spend a lot of time in their, in their bedrooms, but it's important that we're trying to make that connection with them. Even, even if they're in their bedroom, knocking on their door and saying, Hey, just want to let you know that, you know, I'm here if you need to talk or, um, you know, what's going on and making that, that connection with them. And because if they're feeling hopeless, if they have some type of a connection with that, with a um, trusted friend or family member that may make them um, continue to hold on to hope. And so it's important that we're making that connection. So some of the things that, that I um, wrote down um, and that I know about is if they're talking about dying or they're talking about being useless or they're talking about um, killing themselves, whether it be flippantly, you might think it's flippantly, but it's important that we go with our gut. Um, if you've got a, um, a child that maybe you, that you're able to look at their social media, their search engines, if they're looking for ways to, to die by suicide or looking for ways to kill themselves, that certainly would be a, a, a red flag. Um, talking about the feelings of hopelessness, having no reason to live. Um, talking about being trapped or in an unbearable pain. Um, talking about being a burden to others. That's a huge thing, being a burden. Maybe missing school or missing work more than normal. Again, these are major changes in their behavior. Um, increasing the use of their alcohol or their, their drug use. Um, acting anxious or agitated, behaving recklessly, sleeping too much or too little, being in their bedroom behind that closed door, uh, withdrawing or isolating themselves, showing rage, um, missing work and school, I already mentioned that one, and feelings of extreme hopelessness and feelings of extreme disconnect, disconnectedness. Um, and again, if you get yourself involved in an education or a training, you're going to you're going to learn more in depth about these the signs that someone might be in a mental health crisis and know what to say and what not to say. What about um, I, oh. it shows up on lists all the time about giving away possessions? Although oh, definitely that, yes. For I mean, sure. it hasn't been my experience, and and I've been around a couple folks that either. Uh, died by suicide or had a Thompson. And so I always see that on lists. And mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose it's possible, but um, so you've, you've seen that too. That oh, absolutely. Yes. And one of the things that um, when I go back to and think about the conversation six years ago, right after my son took his life, is that I, I learned this, that Sometimes if someone is, um, has been planning in their head, they get the plan already. They know what they're going to do. They know when they're going to do it. Sorry. They go through a time of euphoria. So apparently my son, he hadn't been in our life for, for several years before his suicide. Um, but apparently he, he was in that euphoria period, like a week before his suicide. People that saw him said that they had never seen him happier. And he was a happy guy. He was a happy kid. Um, but they mentioned, a few people mentioned that they had never seen him so happy. So he may have been in that euphoria period where he knew that his plan was going to take place. So um, whether that's a sign or not that most people wouldn't look for, um, but I think it's important that you mention that. Yeah. 
Go ahead, Tim. Well, first, just thank you for coming in and sharing your story. I know it's not easy. Um, I'm a person in recovery from substance use disorder and mental health and a survivor of an attempt myself. Um, and it is just like a trap in a, in a hell. Um, it, it, it feels never ending. It's as if time stops um, and it will never change. Um, and so, I mean, I can, I can definitely relate to a lot of those things. Uh, the, my thoughts on it, it still boggles my mind that mental health is so disregarded. Um, my thinking on it is uh, we define ourselves, we identify more as our personality. Say if Lisa, if I took Lisa's body and Lisa took mine and you were aware of it, you'd address my body as Lisa and hers is Tim. And so that is the mind is me, not my body. Mm -hmm. And so to say there's, I have a mental health issue is to say there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the stigma comes in though. Like people don't want to admit that. People don't want to say that, but it isn't, it is an illness, like you said. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about the use of commit, like you just pointed out. Um, and I'm definitely going to be mindful of that. It's something that's been in my language for so long that, you know, it's hard to just change those habits immediately, but I'm definitely going to keep that in mind because, I mean, yeah, it does make it sound like so much more of a voluntary effort. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that that touched you because I've talked to so many people in the last six years that, um, that yes, that they look at me and just like you, you know, you don't think about it that way. And um, I've only ever had one negative um, comment with that. And unfortunately, it was with a, a medical professional. And she said, well, it's been said that way forever. It's going to continue to be said that way. And it's that kind of attitude, excuse me, that continues the stigma to build up, right? Just that simple little word and just having that little short conversation like I just did with you is so important and I believe it's life-changing. So um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, that's the idea that keeps all sorts of discrimination around is it's been that way, so why change it? Right, exactly. Right? And Janine, I like the fact, though, that you pointed out that you gently correcting people. Um, there's a, <laughs> a, a <laughs> mental health therapist that I just love. And he, he said, he said, nobody likes to be clobbered over the head with the truth. Well, yeah. So being gentle, you know, I had to correct, correct a, a learned person recently who referred to somebody with substance use disorder as a junkie in a training and um at the end of it I just kind of gently said you know John we don't refer to folks with substance use disorder as junkies anymore and you know he and and I like I said if I would have you know jumped down his throat it wouldn't have been as effective as me pulling him aside mm -hmm. so that he wasn't publicly embarrassed kind mm -hmm. of a thing. And the other thing is leading by example. Yes. So you're right, Tim, it is hard. And I've known about the committed part for years because I've had training, um, but it is, you know, language takes a while and how many people in our business still use substance abuse, whether in writing or in speaking rather than substance use. So mm -hmm. it just takes a while and lead by example. Exactly. 
It was, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to um, say to you, Tim, that I'm very proud of you. And I want to encourage you to continue to hold on to hope, being in recovery, and to know that you matter and that you just have to keep fighting the fight. And um, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here today. It's, it's, uh, it can be hard to believe that at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's definitely something I've put a lot of work into. And still, it can be hard to believe that at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the important thing, not the important thing, but one of with conversations about things like that word is when people ask why. And then it can be explained and a discussion can occur. Mm-hmm. And I mean, changing the language is, so, is very important on these things, but the, uh, the ideas behind them persist if the, even if the language changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, it's very good to hear that people are at least willing to have the conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you notice too, um, I don't watch a whole lot of um, mainstream media, but you will notice um, that the local stations here in Northern Michigan, I've had several conversations with producers and with um, some of the um, personalities or the news people and um, talking about reporting um, about suicide in a safe and responsible way. And you'll notice that a good majority of them, I would say 99% of them are not using the word commit anymore. They're, they're reporting in a safe and responsible way and using the language died by suicide and not reporting on the um, the method used. That's so important that it's it's not important to, to talk about the method. The family and the, the, the circle of um, family and friends, sure, if it's appropriate, age appropriate, if you've got kids, but on the news, reporting the method is absolutely irresponsible. Um, but I'm, I'm personally very proud of our local media and the way that they have in the last three or four years um, change their language and, and are reporting in a safe and responsible way. Words and images are, are very important. And I know um, I didn't really notice it as much until I was immersed in this business, but media that uses pictures of spoons and needles and other <laughs> kinds of things that can be really triggering to people. And, um, you know, once again, we've been trying to sort of um, educate and teach them that, you know, really, is that necessary? Are you going for shock value? Or are you going, you know, to report the news? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, if people are fighting those battles, I remember a coworker of mine uh, died in a horrific car accident, you know, years ago, and I was equally incensed because they showed the wrecked car and then they showed her shoe laying there at the side of the road, you know? And, and it's like, are you kidding me? Her family is watching this, you know? It was just, um, and it's, I think, I think in so many ways, once again, we get desensitized by having the news in the background and not really paying attention until it affects us personally. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like when you buy a car and you don't notice that kind of car on the road. But if you have that car, all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's a Volkswagen, there's a Volkswagen, there's a Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but you never noticed them all on the road before until you bought one. Right. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. A quick, yeah. 
Go ahead. I was just going to say too that, you know, suicide, loss to suicide is so complicated. There's so many facets and it can be so isolating. And um, so it's so important, it, and especially um, I can say personally, and my husband would say the same, that if you have experienced a loss to suicide, that you try to get into a group um, with people with lived experience. It's so important because um, people with lived experience have been my lifesaver the last six years. And I'm certainly not an expert on, on this at all, but I just share my lived experience the last six years and what I've learned and what I continue to learn um, on, a, on a daily basis. So um, it's so important that people understand that, um, that we be kind, that we think before we say something to somebody that may have just experienced a loss to suicide. I've had some pretty cruel things said to me and continue to be said to me um, in regards to Zach's suicide. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is to sit with somebody, sit close to them, maybe have your hand on their knee or their, your arm around them and just say, hey, listen, I'm here to listen and completely shut your mouth and just listen. Sometimes that's all we need instead of being talked to or spoken to. Um, in my experience, I sometimes have a hard time closing my mouth, but it's 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 very important that you know that um, there are people. If you've experienced a loss of suicide, that there are people out there that understand, and and to that that you can reach out and and get the help that you need. Um, there's so many whys and what ifs when it comes to a, a loss of suicide, and we had so many of them. Um, we joined a group called Grief Share. Um, at our church in Traverse City. Um, it's Michael's place in um, Traverse City is also doing, it's a six weeks, six week grief share course. It's a nationwide program. And one of the um, sessions was dealing specifically with loss to suicide. And they talked about the whys and the what ifs. And if we had the answers to our whys and what ifs, we wouldn't have Zachariah back. So six years ago, we said to ourselves, and they, they encouraged us to say this too, what would Zechariah want you to do now? What would he want you to do? So instead of saying why and what ifs, we said what? And we knew exactly that we needed to be Zechariah's voice to try to bring hope to those that are dealing with the darkness that, that eventually took his life. So that's what we've done the last six years is continue to be Zach's voice to inspire hope and um, that's why we came up with our movement um, called Hope Lives in Northern Michigan to inspire hope, to create a larger coalition of local nonprofits that are um, working for mental health awareness, um, suicide prevention, intervention, and um, awareness, and of course that very vital part, the aftercare services for someone that has lost um, someone to suicide. That aftercare is so important, especially with loss to suicide. So that's what HOPE does. We, we've partnered with several local nonprofits. Um, we are not a, a, a nonprofit, but we help them with their getting the word out for their education and their support groups. And we also do um, fundraising for them. And then the money is directly, directly donated to them from the organization or um, the company or the business that we've done our, our, um, our 
fundraising efforts with. It goes right directly to the nonprofits. So again, education and training awareness is definitely the key. And we feel um, with Hope Lives in Northern Michigan that um, our work eventually, because we're, we're fairly new, I started the Facebook page a year ago this past August, and um, we've done some great things. And um, right now, uh, Friday, uh, Child and Family Services is offering a QPR um, Zoom uh, training. Uh, you can still sign up for that. You can go to our Facebook page, Hope Lives in Northern Michigan, and find out about um, everything that's happening here locally. It's so important that we're taking care of our local nonprofits. These national QPR organizations- question, persuade, refer. Thank you, and, yes. Uh, it, it's a good, good training. I've taken it myself right. and well, well worth it. Yes, and it's Zoom. So it's, you know, you can do it in your jammies if you want to do it in your jammies yep. with your coffee, right? With your, everybody's got to get their mug and have get their mug, coffee, there right? You go. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm yeah. so glad, Janine, that you did, because one of my questions for you was going to be, you know, family members, uh, Suzanne and I um, facilitate a group called Stronger Together, which is mm -hmm. for family members of those um, struggling with substance use disorder. And, you know, like I told you that, you know, overdose a lot of times gets ruled as a suicide. And, and a lot of times then family members are, are kind of doubly shocked to put that label on there. And, um, you know, when the question I was going to ask you was, well, you know, how, how what, what do you say to family members when, you know, they're struggling with maybe guilt for not seeing some of the signs, you know, beforehand, but you already answered that by the, you know, whys and what ifs, not that, but the what. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's just so true is, um, learning from the experience as, as hard as those lessons are, and they are hard. And, um, you know, my mom was very much in denial about my sister's, well, just about pretty much everything, both her mental health issues and her substance use disorder. And she has learned so much since then, but I keep encouraging her. It's like Tim um, Shoecraft was saying, the conversations are what's important. And those conversations are hard. They're really hard. And they take practice. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the first time, it may be hard to get your words out or what you want to say or the language right. Um, but just because it's hard, we can't stop doing it. Right. We have to keep having the conversations. Yeah, they are tough conversations. They're so tough, but it's so important that we continue with those conversations and not staying stuck. Not, you know, it's so easy, even in our depression, you know, in, in my depression that I've dealt with my entire life, it's so easy to get stuck and to, to get stuck in that darkness. And it's so easy to say that the pain is temporary but when you're dealing with that, that pain and you're in that pain, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But it is important that we don't stay stuck. We, we need to feel those feelings. You know, you know, we can't, we can't pack everything down. We need to feel all those feels and learn from them. And that's what we've done for the last six years. And then in continuing that conversation and making those connections, connections, these the connections that we've made the last six years have been life-saving for us. Do we still struggle? Absolutely, we still struggle. Will tomorrow be a terrible hard day for me? It will be a very hard day for me. 
Um, but it's so important that we have those connections and um, to have those conversations. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that I think once again, back to culture, you know, part of the reason those conversations are so hard is for many, many years, all this stuff was, you know, um, and that goes back to the stigma is, oh, don't, don't tell anybody. This Mm -hmm. is, shameful you know this is we don't want anybody to know that our family is dealing with this problem and I know from my own experience that's the way I was raised is Mm -hmm. that nobody knows needs to know our dirty laundry whether it's generational you know and when I say dirty laundry it's a problem and that's how it should be viewed it's a it's something that that needs attention not something that needs to be hidden away or whatever um and that's what my mom has you know had trouble with is that's definitely the way she was raised is you don't talk about these these issues and it's like mom that's why what happened happened a lot Mm -hmm. of it because Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about it you know so once again lead by example (laughs) I wanted to bring up some statistics um, that I looked up. 20% of people who have died by suicide have either opioids, whether heroin or prescription painkillers in their system, and 22% alcohol. It involves alcohol, which are real high rates. And probably this is from 2016, so they're probably even higher in the moment. And that's not talking about meth, which is real high statistics with meth. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that combination. So often we find loved, you know, family members will try to get help for their loved ones who have dual diagnosis. And, you know, we get them in to get help. And if they say that they don't have a problem, um, the, or, or whoever won't listen to the family to say, you know, to, so they know that there is an underlying mental health issue. It's not just the substance use disorder. So, but they always put the substance use disorder on top of the mental health issue and it's hard to get help. Does anybody want to talk about that? I, I just need to say that when you had, when I spoke at the fan meeting, this, this subject just, I was just so, um, I can't even think of the word, the dual diagnosis part of it that makes no sense to me because the this um the substance use disorder is is mental health right exactly exactly i mean no one could ever explain to me that being different and i still from that day i came home and i told my husband i said we got to talk about this this is it's just wrong I, i i agree completely um i don't know how they are separated um, I know that in my own personal experience, like they're absolutely one and the same. And I was, I would not have been able to treat either one without treating them both. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I tried. Um, and and it becomes a vicious circle of like the, the mental health s- symptoms occur because of the use, the use occurs because of, and I'd say is like there was some of it that was fun addiction like some of it was when I started using drugs it was fun um but then it became self-medication because the stigma I didn't want to ask for help so I I became convinced that I could fix it myself 
And then that just like perpetuated both issues. And, and why, why don't um, they listen to what the families have to say? Nobody knows individuals better than family members, you know, that, that have lived with them and stayed with them. It's, it's, so, it's so sad. It's just, it's beyond sad. If you ever look at Michigan's mental health code, a lot of that has to do with that lovely piece of work that really needs an overhaul, I think, in a lot of ways. And so a lot of our treatment professionals are bound by that mental health code in how they deliver services. And um, you know, it, it seems like these major systems that we have should be easy to change when we realize that it's not working. Yeah, not so much, <laughs> you know, when, so it's, it's little baby steps. I was thinking, just sitting here trying to think, there was a movie in the 80s, you know, so much of what we're talking about here, we all know that mental health and physical health are intertwined, and we've known that for a long time. And yet, because of our bureaucracy and our legal system and these major systems that take huge amounts of, of concerted effort and very powerful people to change, they don't get changed. So here we are, but this movie in the 80s, and I want to say... I can see the actor, but I can't think of who it was. Anyway, it's about a guy who struggles with alcohol use disorder. And the first line in the movie is, you know, is this the disease or the cure? And which started first? And and just like um, Tim was saying, you know, in the beginning, he started drinking to blunt the effects of something that happened in his life that was pretty tragic and pretty disappointing. And then after a while, though, you know, the drinking became the major problem. Um, so is it the disease or the cure? And um, I, I just, I, in my experience, I think the reason that so often substance use disorder sort of gets treated in the realm of the physical part is that's how we train our doctors. We used to not train our doctors in that relationship between mental health and, and physical health. And, oh, this is what's wrong with the machine, the machine being your body. <laughs> oh, well, this is what we do to fix the machine. And we don't, you know, I'm not the computer expert that fixes the computer in the machine being the brain. <laughs> that's that's those other guys that went to a different kind of school kind of thing. And, you know, not everybody can be an expert on everything, but yeah, those working in silos and, and um, not, not realizing that crossover has been a, a, a problem yeah. and it yeah. continues to be a problem. It, it we, does. We've got about 20 minutes. Can we, Kim and Tim Hudson, you want have anything to say about anything we've talked about, Kim? <laughs> well, <laughs> Janine knows how I feel about um, her situation because I've seen it played out way too many times at Munson. Um, you know, it's just, it's sad. And that's <laughs> one of the biggest reasons why I quit the healthcare system because there's nothing moving too quickly. And I just felt like there was no um, answers in the ER or in the hospital because everybody's so focused on COVID that nobody really cares about anything else that's going on around them. 
um, people that come in with like overdoses or are, you know, extremely drunk or with any kind of substance use disorder is looked at like a pain in the ass and they just want them out of there because they're not what they say. They're not a, a detox center and they're not a rehab and they're a hospital. And so, you know, a lot of people that come in there don't meet their criteria unless um, you are extremely suicidal with a written plan or a plan in hand or are homicidal with, um, you know, uh, with instruct, I mean, basically you have to prove that you have, that you are going to do this or they will let you go. I've seen it um, quite a few times. And the, the biggest part that sucks is like you hold on to an iPad and the person that's sitting on the other end of the iPad, the, the community mental health worker, you know, only sees about 20 minutes of what is going on with that client. And I have watched in two separate occasions, those um, two different clients uh, pretend that they were okay because they wanted to go out and have a cigarette. And so, um, or uh, that they needed to just go, they just, you know, they, they can change their demeanor. And then I watch a girl, you know, set the iPad down and then just go berserk and started throwing herself up against the wall and all of that stuff. And then, you know, they say, well, she doesn't qualify because of this, this, and this, but they don't see her as like an all around, like what she's doing completely. They just see what she's doing that 20 minutes that they're on that little iPad, which is disgusting to me. Um, <laughs> we really need a, a change in our healthcare. And right now, seriously, they're still just so devoted to COVID and what they're gonna do about COVID that anything else that comes in is just overlooked. and. It's really sad. Well, I have a theory that's kind of, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit out there, but as far as the physical health, mental health distinction goes, um, in our society, um, mental or physical health is so prioritized and, and so the people who treat it, physicians are paid so much more um, because it, it, that treatment puts us back at work. And mental health substance use treatment makes us realize that we want more out of life. Um, and it's that sort of disparity that, that occurs because it kind of challenges our system as a whole. Um, and I mean, yet that with the coming into the ER and the plan there, that's like expecting them to, the, this person, this patient to be comfortable enough to say this to a complete stranger after they've already felt that they've just been a, a nuisance mm -hmm. that, to the staff. And then they haven't, they, they, there's only been a slight, maybe an indirect admission of the pain to their family. But then they're gonna be very direct and state their plan with a stranger who seems like they don't want them there. Right. Yeah. yeah when I, Go ahead. Go ahead. I've got a when, uh, when I worked for Children Protective Services, uh, we saw that pretty frequently where there would be kids who would be um, making suicidal threats and, and talking about it. And, and you know, they'd go to the, the ED 
And like you guys have said, if they, unless they repeat that exact threat while they're sitting there talking to a stranger, often with having security standing outside of the door and all types of people you don't know uh, staring at you, they're not going to give you any services. They're just going to say, well, he's, this person's fine. The kid's fine. They can go. And essentially you're just waiting then for something to actually physically happen to the child before something uh, help is available. Um, there's a couple of things I was thinking of uh, while everybody was, was talking. Um, uh, talking about uh, referring to it as a selfish act. Uh, you know, that's something that's always kind of bothered me when I hear, I, I've had uh, a friend and some, uh, a couple of family members uh, lose their life to suicide. And certainly we know that uh, part of the, the stage, one of the stages of grief is, is anger. And, you know, hearing uh, people I know refer to it as a selfish act, that's kind of what I've always attributed to is it's part of their, their anger with the situation. But so much of that, you're losing um, things that we could learn by, you know, by thinking about the, the pain that that person obviously was experiencing. And, you know, when you when you think about that, the pain that they were in and reflecting on that, what are signs that, you know, maybe we can learn from in the future and help other people? Um, the other piece is something that Suzanne brought up in about uh, substance use and how, she, you know, we cited some statistics on substance use. Uh, where people have lost their life to suicide. And, you know, thinking about, I'm just thinking about from like a data standpoint, um, you know, are we, are we losing some information that's out there on how prevalent substance use is? Um, because we've had some conversations about, and I think it kind of varies by medical examiner that, um, you know, when overdose takes place, is it on the death certificate reflect a suicide? Is it gonna reflect uh, accidental overdose? Um, you know, when the suicide occurs, certainly could make the argument that if there's substance use present, that played a role in what happened. Um, and, you know, if it's not recognized on a death certificate, it, it, it's like it didn't happen from a statistical standpoint and so much funding is based on those statistics. And I was just thinking about, you know, we think the numbers are really high, but in reality, it's probably underreported and what we truly have, if that makes sense. Well, and, and again, talking about the, the death certificate and, and what the coroner, whoever, the doctor, whatever, puts on that, um, that death certificate, does it even need to be suicide? Why can't it be if someone dies because of cancer, they died because of an illness, because of as a re result of, of the, um, the symptoms or side effects from cancer? You know, I, I, Right. Why, why can't why, they put from a, from a mental health standpoint? It's right. Like a mental, because of a mental health issue or, you know, it's a health issue. It's, it, it, it's not, I mean, we call it suicide, but if we, if we call it what it is, what we should be calling it a mental health issue, he died, my son died because of an illness. And in again, talking about the funding and, and how that yep. all works and in the legalities, you right. know, once we, upon a time, you, if, if that's what they put on your death certificate, then your life insurance wouldn't pay out. And yeah, there were, yeah. you know, which my, my brother-in-law, he, he was very, you know, on top of losing his wife. Um, then that added anxiety was there because that's what he was very worried about then was, right. okay, well, her life insurance, because, um, you know, the medical community meant extra 
links to try and keep her alive and she was on life support and that's all very expensive and you know that's why it just aggravates me so much when so many of our our systems come down to the to the money issue yeah it's always Um, the dollar yeah and so the treatment people get you know um and then so and and I was going to say Timothy maybe because you do work as in the medical examiner's office you know how are those decisions made on what goes on a death certificate? So it would it would vary by so the state's kind of broken up into different uh, teams of medical examiners. Um, Grand Traverse County uh, falls under uh, Western Michigan's medical examiner's office, which is out of Kalamazoo. And there's 11 counties that are part of that. I'm not sure if Kel, or Kalamazoo, Kalkaska's uh, medical examiner just has Kalkaska or if they have several counties, I'm not sure. But kind of each team there, uh, they probably have their own uh, policies and guidelines. And, um, you know, here in, Kel- in uh, Grand Traverse County and Leelanau County, I would say that um, it really would just depend on the individual situation. Um, and in my experience, I have not seen um, an overdose be labeled on the death certificate of suicide unless there was a note that was left um, right. describing intent or, you know, possibly um, a recent um, ideation where uh, those types of threats were expressed. Otherwise, it would be put down as an accidental overdose. But again, that's kind of left up to interpretation of uh, those those teams of medical examiners and you know the investigator that's on scene would obviously uh, look into those things and kind of come up with the determination. But I agree. I know other counties don't do it that way. And really, personally, I mean, I, the the notion of a death certificate is kind of just just from a personal position is kind of bizarre. Um, but it's kind of like a record keeping thing, and. Um, unless there is something like a note present or something explicitly stated, how do you know? Right. That, that well, and that's, that's the, what, what they struggled with, with, with my sister, there was no note. She got up and went to work that day. You know, she took a bunch of over the counter pills and drank a whole bunch of hand sanitizer and, and you know, that was it. Um, and so in trying to help my mom through this, you know, because when she saw that, it was like, you know, mom, I don't think this was premeditated. And so, but the fact that our, our systems, for whatever reason, felt the need to, you know, put that document on there. And that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think with our mental health code and our our how we do things we need to look at and say just like you were saying Janine is that even, is that necessary why is that necessary mm. you know um it, it reminds me of a place I used to work years ago they used to have us make four copies of of these documents so we're these intake documents and I got curious because I was spending a lot of time making these copies and it's like so what do y'all do with these copies once I make them and send them to you and they said, well, we put them in that cabinet over there. I said, yeah, what do you do with them for that? You know, oh, nothing. We just put them over there. Well, do you need them for anything? No. And <laughs> so I quit making them. And my other folks that were doing the same job, they're like, oh, you're getting your work done a lot faster. And I said, yeah, I quit making all those copies because they don't do anything with them. And then pretty soon everybody else quit making those copies, you know? So sometimes we need to ask, 
just just like you said, Denise, well, what's that for? Mm -hmm. If it's not for anything, let's stop doing it. You know. Yeah. I know my my cousin, um, she died by suicide a few years back. Uh, she had a severe alcohol use disorder and an opioid use disorder. And she was threatening to her husband who was out of town at the time, he's actually out of state. And he called the police, um, not once, but twice, because she was calling people to say she loved them. And she, I was one of the people she called and I, I didn't catch on at all. Um, and so that night she broke into where the medications were locked up because she had a caretaker there, which was just a friend. And she broke in and grabbed all her medication, um, apparently took it, went down to McDonald's, grabbed a something to drink, which was just a block down the road, and walked back by the house and collapsed in a field. Mm -hmm. And they found her the next day. But why were the police called twice before they did anything? I mean, the, the person there was saying that she's threatening this. Her husband is saying she's threatening this. People were calling him saying she's calling people saying she loved them. Why did they not take her somewhere safe? Right. And, th and that's where education and all it is. is, is it's yeah, because, when, because when they showed up, she said, I'm fine. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and again, yeah, right. And they, and they do do that, right? But again, mm -hmm. it goes back to education and trainings, and especially for our first responders. If they don't know how to respond, to someone that's in a mental health crisis, it can go completely wrong. So again, that I, when I think about um, education, awareness, trainings, it's so important. It's everybody's job. And um, I would say, especially our, our first responders and our, our police officers, it's so important that they, that they get the help and the training that they need and the, the help and the, um, support that they need with everything that they're seeing because of their PT, you know, because of their PTSD. I, I so encourage them to get rid of that stigma and get the help that, 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 that they need. So. And Suzanne, I'm not familiar with this. You, um, maybe I am for as far as the mental health petition goes, does a family member's testimony count? I don't know. I tried to get help for my son recently. I, I actually went over to community mental health. I wrote, did all the paperwork. A judge agreed with me. They picked him up. They brought him to the hospital. He got to the hospital, said he was fine. They decided it was more substance disorder, not looking at the underlying condition and they let him go. Mm. And he caused havoc around the community. Now he's looking at prison time. It would have got him the help he needed at the time. We might not be looking at what we're doing, you know, what we're looking at now. Yeah, and I mean, from the patient's or like standpoint, like from his standpoint at that point, like in that state of mind, it may not be possible to really distinguish. Like the substance use disorder certainly seems like the more immediate because that mental health crisis, that mental health issue has been so persistent it's been a thing for so long that it's almost normal that that's what life is and so when it's that it's just it it's normal um but then when substance use is added in it it 
I mean, it, it is. I know from my experience when I was in similar situations, like it was that exactly that. It was the problem at the time because my mental health had been a problem for so long that it didn't feel like it was out of the normal. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they asked, how do you feel? It was like, well, I'm, I'm fine because I'm normal. Um, and, and just in that situation, like it, the parents, the family, the loved ones, like their perspective is invaluable. There are so many times when I didn't even know, I realized I had a problem with some, whether it be mental health or substance use until family, friends, loved ones, made me aware of the things I was doing and the way I was behaving, the thoughts that I was articulating. Um, because that state of mind is so, it, it becomes impossible really to introspect too far. And yep. when you take somebody and somebody that has a, you know, a mental health issue and you put them on a substance like say meth, it makes those, it makes things worse. I mean, it, it, the anger and the aggravation and, you know, then they start going into psychosis and they, and from what I'm hearing, they send people home in the middle of psychosis because it's drug, it's drug related. It's drug related. It's drug not, induced. Yeah, it's drug, yeah, drug induced psychosis, yeah. but they're still cutting them loose and they're out and walking around. But what's the difference? It's still psychosis. Exactly. Is it any exactly. less of a threat because it's drug induced? Anything, I mean, it may be more. Yeah, I don't isn't think it? they really care. It's just a pain in the ass and they want you out the door. I've seen it way too often. I just, I, it's like, they're like, oh, this is a substance use disorder. You can call, uh, you know, uh, uh, call MRE in the morning <laughs> or call ATS for detox, right. blah, blah, blah. But you don't detox go. off meth. There's no medical detox for meth. So, and you yeah. can't, and a lot of your treatment centers don't want to deal with it because they're in psychosis and they're, they can be violent. I've encountered that situation before working with patients where mental health facilities won't accept because substance use is too severe and substance use facilities won't accept because mental health is too severe. And to the point where like, they're the same thing. Um, I mean, sir, sure, like not everyone with mental health concerns, <clears throat> excuse me, has a substance use disorder, but I don't think it works the other way. Right. <clears throat> I think that the substance use disorder is a form of a mental health issue. Um, but in that sort of situation, it is just like, I mean, I, I remember working with one patient in particular where this went on for months where he, he was begging for help and we could not find anywhere that would take him. Isn't, isn't that so sad? When, when, I, when you think about that, I, I, we've talked to families the last six years that finally have gotten their child to admit they need help, right? Or maybe it's an adult child um, or a family member finally say, yes, I can't do this on my own anymore. I need help. And they bring them to um, the ED and the ED says, sorry, we don't have a bed for you. You'll have to make an appointment. Well, maybe you can't get an appointment for six weeks, right? Can you imagine if you brought your child or your adult child or a friend to the, to the ED, they're having a heart attack. 
and they say to you, we're so sorry, but we don't have a bed for you. You'll have to make an appointment and come back in six weeks. Can you imagine what this country would be doing? That's, that's a great exactly, point. But that's exactly what they're doing to people that are dealing with men, their mental health, having a mental health crisis. It's unacceptable. And I don't know how to change it. I do know that more voices and we're together, we're stronger. We know that. But that's, that is so unacceptable. But that's what's happening. And a lot of people don't know that. And so it's so important that we're talking about it and making people aware that this is exactly what's happening. And it's it's completely unacceptable. That's an excellent way to illustrate it, but I've never thought of or come across with a heart attack. And if somebody showed up at the ED and they said, sorry, no bed. Um, a good yeah, resource. Point a good that, resource in Traverse City is the um, National Alliance for Mental Illness, NAMI. Um, they were around in Traverse City and then they went away for a little while and now they're back kind of with a vengeance and they're doing some really great advocacy work. Um, and, and that's the hard part is, like I said, we all, we all know and see this, but how do we make the change and getting involved in groups like that that go down to Lansing and give public comment, you know, during um, uh, open public comment times, you know, so that some of the money and the, the power makers and the decision makers also know what we know. Um, and it, it, it takes dedication. It really does. Um, and it keeps telling our, keep telling those stories, keep talking to people. And if you think about any other health crisis or really anything, um, in, in 2020, the estimates are that 93,000 people died of drug overdose. If you take any other issue and say 93,000 people have died this year, there would be issues people would do things like it would be something that was made a number one priority mm -hmm. but with substance use disorders it's just about not spoken of yeah what what training was that we were at suzanne i can't remember somebody because we go to so many who was a pretty heavy hitter talked about that you know we managed to shut an entire country down in two weeks with covid when it first started and yet we have not been able to get a handle on some of these problems like our our lack of mental health care you know why I, is i remember i remember someone saying that but i don't remember who it was but yeah i can't either off the top of my head but that's one of those nuggets that to file away and say you know if i don't get anything else out of this training that's true you know we can we can make that happen and we can dump money, you know, all over the place and and make things happen and develop a vaccine in record time. And yet we've made very little inroads in solving our mental health crisis. Right. It's and one of the physicians with uh, Michigan Opioid Collaborative, she's a psychiatrist. Um, she actually said it really well one time. Um, that with mental health and substance use disorder, as opposed to any other health concern, there it's the case that the sicker you are, the less treatment becomes available. True. True. Sad. Very, very sad, isn't it? It is. 
on that note, we're we're past time. We're at 1245. I want to thank everybody for being here. I got to run over to the Hocasca Farmers Market and set up all my information. Um, I just thank you all for being here. This was an excellent, it was a great conversation. Uh, thank you, Janine. Yes, thank you, Janine. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank, thank you, we'll everyone. Let, we'll yep. let you know Love what our girl. conversation is going to be next month. Take so. care, everyone. Here, remember, you matter. We really want to thank everybody here yeah, for their time good. today and their expertise. Um, I think this has been a productive conversation, and um, we look forward to uh, future collaborations. Yeah, absolutely.